This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast and the exclusive benefits that await your generous support. Thank you. Have you ever wondered the origins of the infamous Attila the Hun? Or how much the no-goodnik son of Theodosius I, Emperor Honorius, unwittingly contributed to Western Rome's impending demise? Well, do we have some stories for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. And Patrick, at time of recording, this is the first time you and I have recorded in seven weeks. We're coming off of a seven-week hiatus. I know. I hope I still know how to do this, how we still know how to do this. It's been a strange seven weeks between just time off and various other things. We've had a huge break, but we're back now. Hopefully you guys haven't been as well, but we've had so much in the bank that, Paul, you've been tediously producing to get out while we haven't been recording. But no, it's it's exciting times ahead. They definitely are. And today... We are going to have a couple of really great subjects. On my part, we're finally getting into really one of the giants Mm. of history. A very interesting one. One that everybody listening right now has most certainly heard of. And that, of course, is the infamous Attila the Hun. I would say this is probably the first big figure from history who isn't of Roman descent. Like, obviously, we talked about a lot of Chinese figures, but like, Someone known around the world, like Wang Meng, isn't a, a world-renowned historic figure. Like this is one of the first times we've talked about a historical figure who isn't Roman. I mean, I guess Boudicca many, many, many moons ago. But it's exciting to see that these other cultures are finally starting to creep their way yeah. into our narrative. Yeah, of course, Jesus wasn't Roman of course, either. Yeah. yeah, Jesus too. Of course, my bad. <laughs> Forgot about the big man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Hmm. really a a huge non-Roman towering Hmm. figure. But conversely, I'm talking about a Roman character who is very non-towering by any means. It's quite a contrast between who you're talking about and who I'm going to be talking about in today's episode. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to getting back into the swing of things, Hmm. doing what needs to be done. It's good to be sitting here with you again and sitting with you, listening or watching wherever you may be watching Hmm. or listening And with all of that in mind and all of it out of the way, it is time to lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Right here, we have a new and interesting figure that most of you are unfamiliar with. Mm. 
I certainly was not that familiar with this figure, but you get to introduce us to one Honorius. Honorius, Honorius, Honorius. Uh, we will probably be saying in multiple different ways during this episode. Obviously, we don't have any uh, verbal evidence of how this name was pronounced, as we tend to not do it this far back in the history. But yeah, Honorius, a very interesting figure in Roman history, and one we've I have actually mentioned in passing before. Well, one thing is for sure. We will be saying it in many different ways, but so long as we get it done, the only thing I can say to that is... I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> you're forever... Are you RoboCop fans in the audience? You're always finding a new uses for your new piece of tech, Paul. Your, your fancy stream deck thing. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm a confused old man in the world of streaming, but... You're always finding a new new, new sound to, to pump out of that weird machine of yours. <laughs> Damn straight. Damn straight. So, Mr. Foot. Mm. Say Honorius. those famous words. <laughs> Mr. Foot. Sir Patrick, you have the floor. And as you recently mentioned to me, and now I'm very aware that I always say it, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never noticed I said it so much until you mentioned that. Now I'm very aware of the fact. But yes, uh, as I mentioned, we actually talked about Honorius Honorius uh, a while back. So if you cast your memory back, I mentioned an emperor by the name of Honorius. And he was the one who actually declared that Britain would no longer be under Roman rule. And in today's episode, in my segment, we're going to be looking more deeply into the life of this emperor. And that's because his reign actually came to an end during this decade. So Honorius Honorius, however we're going to say it, is one of the strange emperors of Western Rome. And I, I find myself saying that quite a lot these days between uh, Maximinus Frax, Elagabalus. We're, we're getting to some very strange emperors. Um, yeah. And he certainly did his part in this empire's fall from grace. But many have actually dubbed him Rome's worst emperor. And I'm just. That's saying a lot. It is. It is saying a lot. And I'm just curious if that's really the case. So I want to talk to you, Paul, and the listeners and our viewers about this right. guy's life and what he did and if he really deserves that title. So Honorius was born in 384 AD in Constantinople. So that's something quite interesting off the bat that we're at a point now where no, we're, we're at a point now that well-to-do people are being born in Constantinople. For, for the previous decades, it's been the city people go to, but we're at a point now where it's so well-established that nobility are being born there. And I think that's oh, funny. absolutely. I mean, they're the a whole capital. Mm -hmm. It is well like, and truly a, a new capital of a new empire. A new empire, of course. So it's being carved out of the Bosphorus. As it's happening. Uh, and he was the youngest son of Emperor Theodosius I. Um, I believe he was the last unified emperor of Rome. Memory serves. Theodosius? Yeah. Theodosius I, yes. Yes. I knew something. It's been seven weeks, Paul, as we established. <laughs> so, uh, and he seems to have been quite well liked by his father. And uh, Honorius was dubbed the Nobilissimus Pula, which means the most noble child. And he was actually made consul at the tender age of two years old. Well, that's never going to get abused. No, no. So he was actually proclaimed emperor in 393 AD, just nine years old. Uh, but his father didn't actually die till two years later in a uh, three nine five AD, uh, and that was when the empire. Good on him. Yeah, that was when the empire was split. And as I mentioned, Honorius was the younger uh, son 
of Theodosius I. So he got Western Rome. But his older brother, Arcadius, he got the East. So the empire is fully split by, and as we mentioned, Theodosius was the last one. And the reason it split for the final time was just because he decided his two sons should get half the empire each. Was Arcadius any better than his brother? So it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I guess that depends on how you qualify better. Yeah, Which it, I should exactly. say, more qualified, more naturally inclined towards the role. Something that makes him a preferential option. So if memory serves, I did a tiny bit of research on Arcadius. Uh, it seems part of me would say no in the fact he didn't actually rule for that long. Granted, he ruled in the East and maybe this title of Rome's worst emperor is more looking at the West, but Arcadius doesn't rule anywhere near as long as uh, Honorus in the East. I think he died pretty young. I can't remember how exactly he died, but there's already another p potential candidate for the worst emperor of Rome because he did it far less longer than his brother. But it's a strange one. Maybe another time we can talk to Arcadius and what we missed, we'll check out his life. That would make sense. Mm, yeah. Um, I want to talk about his early reign now. And what's interesting is his early reign was actually very revolving around another person in particular. Like I said, he became emperor when he was nine and then fully became emperor of the West when he was about 10 or 11 or so, two years later. So as we know, childhood power, this is a story we've heard so many times. Did someone say the R word? Am I hearing the word regent in the back there? <laughs> so... And his regent was a man named Flavius Stilicho. So Stilicho was a Roman military commander, and he was actually being considered Western Rome's last great general. So we've got something going on here, Paul. We've got, even though he's not actually emperor, we've got a military man ruling the roost here. Is that sounding a little bit familiar to yourself? Well, there does seem to be be a few familiar notes mm. in this melody mm. and you know if you are a long time or an intermediate length time listener or viewer of AD history especially if you are quite familiar with an ongoing theme from our <laughs> third season is this a potential return, at least in a, to a smidgen, mm. of what we might know, or you watching or listening, you might know as well, mm. as a barrack emperor, at least in as a proxy? It feels like it, doesn't it? Like, this is all the markings of a military man taking power. I mean, there are differences. Undoubtedly, there are differences. A... Like he wasn't actually emperor. His the, the, honor, Honorus was still emperor and he was just a regent. And also he wasn't elected emperor by his troops. That's how the Barak emperors came to be. Their army, their military, <laughs> their, their army, well, their, I, your I, emperor now. I think, we, I think using the term elected isn't elected, quite the term. Declared. I would say proclaimed, proclaimed. through, um, mm. I would say compensation. Yeah. Through motivation through compensation. Yes, but uh, starts with a B and <laughs> ends with ribe. <laughs> yes, that too. But um that didn't happen in this case. He was chosen I don't know who exactly he was chosen by, but it wasn't the case where his men declared, proclaimed, B worded him into being emperor. So it's there are definitely similarities there. It's definitely a military man ruling the roost, but it's actually quite 
on the surface level, it seems somewhat similar, but if you look deeper down, there is a bit of a different story going on here. Do go on. Mm, so one of the first things Honoris and Stilicho did, they actually moved their capital twice. Uh, so he initially moved, Honoris, Honorius originally moved his court to Milan, the Italian city of Milan. Yet, either in 401 or 402 AD, the court was moved to the Italian city of Ravenna. And it might sound strange to think, why? Why would you move the capital so often? Like Even Rome isn't the capital anymore. And, and to Ravenna mm. of all cities. So Ravenna, if memory serves, Ravenna is a very mountainous town or city. It's, it's up in the north. I can't remember the top of my yeah. head. It's up in the top north, like beyond the peninsula of Italy, if memory serves. Um, mm. And this is a tactical thing. By now, the Italian peninsula was being invaded left, right, and center by Huns, by Germanic tribes. Rome. They've been getting beat over the head, most mm -hmm. definitely. So it just made sense to be somewhere where nature, where the mountains and hills are in your favor, because this wasn't a time where you could be a sitting target. You needed to be as defensed as possible if you were in Western Rome right now. If you were in a position of power in Western Rome, you had a very big target on your head. And I say big because it was a very easy target to hit because Rome wasn't, Western Rome wasn't the power it once was. But Stilichow, as we have seen with regents in the past, had plans beyond just being honorous as regent, it seems. He wanted to give his power legitimacy. And he actually married off both of his daughters to Honorus. So his daughter hmm. Maria, he married her off in 398 AD. And then she died in 407 AD. So then his second daughter, Fermantia, he married her off in 408 AD, straight off the bat. Uh, yeah. yeah, so he really wanted to have his bloodline, his daughter, as his wife. So it made more sense. It gave his power more legitimacy. If you're watching House of the Dragon right now, if you've watched Game of Thrones, this is that sort of stuff playing out once again. That's something we've talked about at some point in the future, Paul. So initially, Stilichow, he seemed to have actually been pretty popular amongst the people of Rome. Despite being a regent, people were like, no, we like this guy. We're happy to have him ruling in proxy for our child emperor. But he seems to have grown power mad and he had different I plans see. so he had different plans for his son however he wanted him to do something different as i mentioned arcadius honorus's brother he actually died in 408 a.d so as i mentioned his reign wasn't too long and with no one as emperor in eastern rome still a child thought well i have a son he could go sit on that throne for me but mm -hmm. the only problem being is that by this point, Stilichow's influence had actually really declined. For, for one reason or another, he wasn't as popular as he was in his heyday. Whatever the case, this actually resulted uh, in his assassination in 408 AD. So uh, Stilichow was off. And Onrus had killed his own top advisor. And as quite a young person still, Onrus wasn't too much of a decision maker himself. and. Western Rome, as we know, was already in a bit of a perilous situation right now. And the last thing it needed was a clueless ruler who had literally killed off his best man, his, his, his key decision maker. So Rome was absolutely primed to be, to be taken down a peg or two. And that's exactly what happened, Paul, with the famous sacking of Rome. And this sacking happened in 410 AD. 
And this is the first time Western Rome had ever been sacked. Potentially. Um, <laughs> there's a mythical sacking by the Gauls in 387 BC. I read about, but I said this is sort of mythical. We're not too sure on the facts of this one. But whatever the case, this is a huge deal that Rome was sacked. It just once again shows how much the city of Rome had fallen. Because Rome was never sacked. Rome was the place to be. Rome was the place Hannibal Barker got to the doors of and turned around. To see it sacked now is very upsetting. Um, it is. Yeah. I mean, granted, at this point, Rome ain't what it used to no, be. No, totally, totally not. Rome is far from what it used to be. You know what, Paul? Slight tangent here. But something yeah, by I'm, all means. Something I'm interested in seeing through AD history is yes. Rome's rise again? Because as we know, in our modern life, Rome is the capital of Italy. I'm curious to yes. know when that happened once again, because even when it split from west to east, Rome wasn't even a big deal in west. No, Rome wasn't even a big deal in the Western Roman Empire. As we mentioned, Ravenna is the capital right now. I'm curious to see when Rome solidifies itself as Italy's capital once again. I don't personally know myself when it is. It seems to me hmm. like... Uh, Rome in particular has a, a much greater stature in general, but it has kind of what I would call kind of like the Jerusalem effect, mm. where its importance as a city waxes and wanes mm. over an extremely long period of time, where there are times when, you know, that's where it's hopping, mm. that's where it matters, and then other times that kind of lets its gut out and almost kind of slides into relatively speaking comparatively more dubious state and mm. uh, it, it it just declines in importance but for whatever reason it's up and down and up and down over a long period mm. of time and right now it's definitely on a decline <laughs> yeah. it's been on the decline for quite some time yeah totally so um uh, yeah, it's on the decline at the moment. It seems so strange. So even to our modern ears, we know Rome now as the capital to hear it like that. But you got to remember, this isn't this isn't the Rome it was then, and it isn't the Rome it is now. This is this is just another city in the empire, despite the fact it's the city that's the empire's namesake. It's just another city. And while, as mentioned, we said Rome was no longer the capital of the West, it was still a huge deal, and it was the symbolism Rome had. And it being sacked shows us just how much Western Rome and the city itself was in decline. And who was it yeah. doing the sacking? And it was, of course, the Visigoths led by King Alaric. And when they flooded into the city, they stole and killed pretty much anyone and anything they could. And they burnt buildings down and the city was devastated. But that kind of contradicts something else we've talked about. I said the, the city was devastated, but we know now there are still many buildings in Rome from its ancient period that still stand. And I'm curious, how many, as far as we know, mm. right? Uh, I'm not talking about the, the Pantheon, mm. but as far as we know, it's certainly in terms of your research, mm. Lord Foote, do you know how many buildings are believed to have actually survived? So not off the top of my head, I don't know, I'm afraid. But the Pantheon's a great one you mentioned, Paul. Uh, so obviously we've got things like the Colosseum, which is still standing to a degree. Uh, the Roman Forum is still standing once again to a degree. 
but stuff still standing in really good condition not too sure about but as you mentioned the pantheon is a great example of uh why some buildings did stand the test of time i swear that thing seems like it could survive nuclear holocaust it, it really could and it all comes down to religion paul so the pantheon as we mentioned back in when it was first built it was a temple to the all gods to all the gods of rome's pagan religion and then it became a christian temple and the visigoths while vastly different to the romans they had the same religion this is where we're at you know the the germanic tribes and the romans they're all christian and the visigoths respected the christianity of rome they'd have to destroy anything else but when it came to religious sites like the pantheon because it was a christian church by now it still is to this day they were like no we won't destroy that so it was religion saved the day here for these buildings anyway not for the people they were probably still happy to kill christians i imagine they were probably weren't checking that <laughs> well you know the violence sings its own song mm. but do you think it's 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 just architectural or do you think there might be some divine providence <gasps> maybe there is something divine going on there maybe these holy lights were bursting <laughs> down <laughs> into these buildings saying no we will not destroy them and but anyway the sacking lasted three whole days, and Rome was stripped of pretty much all its valuables. Um, and St. Jerome, he wrote on the matter. He said, the city which had taken the whole world was itself taken. And that kind of sums things up perfectly there from good old St. Jerome uh, speaking yeah, on the matter. Yeah, I was about to say, Jerry's on top of this one. Yeah, here's Jess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what was Honorus, the Roman emperor, doing at this time and of course he was nowhere near rome he was in his capital of ravenna yeah and his reaction to this sacking is quite potentially the most infamous thing about this emperor and his alleged reaction i need to say anyway yeah because, what was hono doing in all this well it's kind of steeped in myth his reaction is we don't know how true if at all it is and supposedly honorous he loved birds he genuinely loved birds he loved pigeons and chickens and his favorite chicken was named rome slash roma obviously latin mm, uh, of course and it, apparently he was he was told by his informants that rome had fallen and he was absolutely heartbroken not because he thought the city was fallen he <laughs> thought his favorite chicken had died he was oh, like, boy. no, Rome, my favorite chicken is gone. But uh, when I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know if that's, if, if that's better or worse or comparable to what Nero was doing mm. when Rome was burning. Having a good sing song. No, it's kind of, it's, <laughs> it's on a similar level for a different reason. It's, it's, it's very similar to that reaction. That's undoubtedly. And we'll talk about like, the public reaction to it because a big the, the, a big part of this very similar to nero is if we don't know if it's true or not but it plays a relevant role anyway regardless of how true it was uh but no, anyway so he thought his favorite chicken had died and upon finding out that rome the chicken was doing just fine he stopped worrying he was oh that was just the city being sacked that's fine it's fine <laughs> the eternal city being sacked worried him very little as long as his chickens were safe and it's an incredibly strange story and uh, it's actually talk about priorities yeah and it's one most modern historians uh regard as fiction 
they do believe this is apocryphal. Mm. Yeah, but so you've got to ask ourselves, if it's regarded mm. as fiction, why are we talking about it? And what's interesting is... That's a damn good question, mm. Mr. Foote. So it, 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 this story is believed to be somewhat con, uh, contemporaneous, as in this isn't something that this story that happened way down the line. This was something people were saying around the time it was going on. And even if it mm. was fictitious... It kind of shows us what the people of Rome thought of him, that they were making up these silly stories, that he was busy tending to chickens. And chickens and pigeons, bless him, they have a bit of an image of being sort of dumb birds. So it kind of, that solidifies. He wasn't like tending to his horses, these wise noble creatures. He was looking after his chickens, the the animal deeply associated with cowardness. Like it, <laughs> it paints, it, it's almost like a political cartoon in some way. It's like a spitting image type thing. He was more concerned <laughs> looking after his dumb birds than his empire. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the interesting thing here mm. is that whether it's true or whether it's not, mm. the valuable takeaway is the fact that it seems to be something that's being perpetuated mm. by you know, your your average Roman on the street. Exactly. It lets you into their thinking and yeah. their perception of him. And, you know, at the very least, it's something that is being perpetuated by some interested party. Mm. No, it's exactly. It just sort of shapes, it kind of gives us, as you mentioned, Paul, a look into the image this guy had at the time. But this wasn't the only strange thing he had. He While his love of he had a love of birds. He had some other strange quirks knocking around too. He was known for banning two things in Rome. He is thought to have banned gladiatorial combat for the final time. And trousers. Pants, as you might call them, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So, gladiatorial combat and pants. Yeah. So, let's talk about gladiatorial combat for a moment here first, Paul. Absolutely. It was already on the decline anyway, and I believe it actually already been banned once before by Constantine, but Honorus put just a flat-out stop to it. As far as I'm aware, this is the last time it got banned, and it stayed banned. Um, But why? But why did he decide to ban it, of all things? So there was a story behind this, if memory serves. I didn't oh take boy, notes of it. Story. No, no, I believe some a, a religious figure, I believe an important religious figure got caught up in a gladiatorial battle, like a, a priest or a bishop of some kind. Some kind of clergy ended up in some kind of gladiatorial combat? Or like died... On the sidelines, there was something along that. Of course, Honorus was a deeply Christian person, as all Western Roman emperors were by now. And seeing that happen, he was like, no, this has got to stop. I should have taken note of it. We may can maybe talk about it in our, our next episode or whatever. But um, there was there was definitely a story behind it. He saw someone of religious importance being heavily affected by gladiatorial combat and went, no, I'm axing this. Mm. But as we mentioned, he had this strange ban of trousers pants um which does sound strange but as you said paul you're kind of bored with this and honorus had his reason so trousers were seen as very much military clothing by this point and the roman army yeah and the roman army had started to wear them and they were worn by barbarians by germanic tribes too um Mm -hmm. honorus did not want the populace to dress in the same way as barbarians or the military he wanted them to be different he didn't want them to look like the enemy or the people fighting the enemy so he flat out banned them so 
there is method to the madness with this one. Mm. Certainly. And it's an interesting thought mm. how there are so many innovations, mm. especially innovation when you're talking about technology, but mm. you can expand beyond that and not be without without plenty of examples. But it's fascinating to me, perhaps it is fascinating to you, mm. how so many trends or technologies that become integral and just everyday parts of mm. life where their point of origination is the military. Or if you want to get even a more modern take on this, think about all the incredibly awesome things that were originally, for the most part, first put into serious play through an organization like NASA. Yeah. That we now get to enjoy every day. And starting with the most important thing by far, which of course is Tang. 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 What's Tang? Is Tang an American figure I'm not aware of? Tang. Oh, Tang. You're not familiar with Tang. My, All right. My idea is it's some sort of fizzy, like, soda drink. Okay. So Tang is a powder it's an oh, orange powder i'm seeing it you, now yeah you Wikipedia. put it in water <laughs> you shake it up and it gives you like a bunch of nutrients and it tastes reasonably decent mm -hmm. and indeed if i understand correctly at the very least it first reached prominence with nasa and the various early phases of putting mm -hmm. manned missions from low earth orbit all the way to the surface of the moon itself wow. Tang. indeed Tang. Is, it, is that what kool-aid's kind of similar to it as well like a powder there mix. are there are similarities i mean granted i have not had tang to drink <laughs> since i was i was a kid without a doubt but you kind of get the idea Mm, yeah, you kind of no. get the idea, and that started with NASA. So it's called, it's kind of like astronaut food, but I believe astronauts never actually ate astronaut food. That was just something else as well, something strange. But A lot yeah, freeze dried stuff. You're totally correct. How saying like so much stuff comes from military and like science, like so much scientific advances, but fashion advances as well. So one I find interesting, Paul. Yeah, is t-shirts actually? If memory serves, I remember reading once t-shirts came from the navy, I believe. And then from that, they kind of just went into like, we all wear t-shirts. Weirdly enough, one of us, neither of us are wearing one right now. Oddly enough, you know, Normally all one... the episodes that we've done, especially yeah. the ones where in front of a camera, yeah. this happens to be the one where we have full-length sleeves, both of yeah. us. Yeah. So, um, but no, I believe t-shirts were a military creation. And then from there, they <laughs> spread to the populace. But no, it really does. High tech. Yeah, high tech uh, innovations. But no, so much comes through the military. I swear, I remember reading once a quote saying, most technological advances, I don't know how about, maybe I made this up. It's a quote I remember hearing once. Most technological advances either come from the military or pornography. Which is they're kind of... both very, very strong driving forces <laughs> in our world. Yeah. Have been for a long time. Yeah. And certainly in the 20th and especially the 21st <laughs> centuries. I don't even have a, an appropriate sound effect for that bit, but... I think we can forego that one <laughs> and let 
wherever you may be listening or watching, fill in the gaps in terms of what you think is the appropriate sound between your ears. <laughs> Could go on there, but let's 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 go on to more serious subjects right now. Let's talk about Honorus's death. So Honorus died in 423 AD, which just gets us into the uh, field of this episode's decade, thankfully. How, despite how he was seen by many, somehow he wasn't actually assassinated. He actually died, he was believed to have died of edema, which is fluid buildup in the lungs. And his death day is recorded as the 15th of August, 423 AD. And when he died, he was 38 years old and had no issue, no heirs, no one, no son or daughter or whatever to take the throne. So the empire actually went to his nephew, Johannes, and he became emperor. And my gosh, Paul, that's a, that's a distinctly Germanic name. That's how far we've come. Emperor Johannes of Rome. Like, that's shocking to hear someone with that name being emperor of Rome. Yeah, Johannes is definitely a name that I have very strong and almost strict association with germanic languages of which yeah. latin most certainly no, exactly. is not and like, if you were to ask someone hey give us a germanic name johan or johans would definitely be one of the first ones they would say like a family fortunes type scenario or fritz exactly so this this ended the reign of honorus and then i will talk about the nitty-gritty here paul how honorus is remembered and he's kind yes. of remembered as a bit of an imbecile, caring more for his chickens than his empire. And words it sounds I like something of a pill. Yeah, well, words I've seen to describe him are feckless, timid, and passive. And he let a lot of his big decisions be made by others. And of course... I think feckless is a really good adjective yeah. based on what you've described here. Exactly. So it's, a terrific, it's a terrific word, feckless. Um. And of course, he's seen as the emperor who let Rome get sacked under his watch. It was a city that had probably never been sacked. And having that happen under your watch isn't a good thing. It's almost being like the prime minister. It's almost like being prime minister for one day and then the queen dies. <laughs> oh, boy. Sorry. Oh, I, boy. Feel free to cut that Here out. Here we go. Just say. Here so, we go. Feel free to... <laughs> Sorry, Liz, both of you. Um, Go on. So having that happen under your watch isn't a good thing. And of course, he gave away Britain too, was mentioned in a whole episode unto itself. And he had some pretty strange quirks. But Paul, the question I want to ask you and ask the audience, was he really the worst emperor of Rome? No. No. No, no, not based on what you've described. No. He's one like, of the goofiest emperors yeah, of Rome. Totally. Like worse is such a subjective word. You mean like quality-wise or like he wasn't evil. Like he wasn't like a Nero or a Domitian. No. Is Domitian or yeah, no. Domi yeah, he wasn't yeah, I get I get my D emperors mixed up. He wasn't evil in that same way. He was just a bit of an imbecile, like you said, a pill, a doofus. So you bring up the word evil. Mm. And you know, and this is something that from if you're listening to the AD History Podcast, you're somebody who, in all likelihood, takes history quite seriously. Mm. In addition to loving it to pieces. But as a historian, one of the most difficult words to deal with 
in a mature analysis of history mm. is the term evil or or really in many cases a lot of these moral adjectives mm. because to what extent is it something of that that you can quantify and qualify in a way that's really meaningful in a way that can really walk away with something that that isn't quite so subjective and, and I, this is going to sound sound terribly terribly nihilistic but good and evil are so often in the eyes and mind and heart of the beholder and so it leads the historian into some difficult territory in terms of well what do i do with that mm. you can clearly say somebody has done horrifically destructive things and caused tremendous death suffering poverty whatever the case may be but evil or good are all things that unfortunately due to their deeply subjective nature mm. even if we are all able to rally around generally on some common shared virtues in regards to what we would consider good versus evil which in many cases i'd like to think that there are some things that it doesn't take a, a whole symposium to come to some sort of consensus on the subject but evil has always been one of the most difficult mm. descriptors for a historian where it's also in in certain respects somewhat imprecise as well people are so like it's easy to portray people as like these one-dimensional you're an evil person you're a bad guy you're a good guy but people and humans are so multifaceted there's even some of his black and white just doesn't exist exactly yeah even some even it's not in absolute terms even like there's some more favorable qualities in some of histories so some of the figures of history who have been dubbed well and truly evil we don't need to name any in particular but you know the kinds we're talking about there oh, absolutely is so if you look into their lives there is some good there like you'll see oh they were a great parent they like did this well that sort of thing it's really fascinating um so yeah evil is a very subjective term but like when we've looked into as we have in AD history, looked at some of those sort of emperors who have been dubbed more evil, like Nero, like Domitian. He isn't on this level on us. But then conversely, talking about evil, people like uh, Hadrian and Trajan. No, Hadrian I'm talking about here. Yes. He is dubbed one of the greatest emperors of Rome. But when we had Sam on... One the, of the five exactly, good emperors. But when we had Sam on for an episode, he told us how in the Jewish communities... He's seen as one of the most evil because of his treatment to the Jews. Like, it's so freaking well, subjective. Yeah, he acted, yeah. He, he acted in, a, in a horrifically destructive mm. fashion that led to a tremendous amount of loss of human life. Mm. So, like, it, and yet, he is still considered one of the five good emperors. Exactly. And, and so when you start getting into terms like good and evil as the historian, it's well, well and fine when you're discussing it 
just casually and we can all get around it. But when you start getting into discussions and analysis of history where precision mm -hmm. is so important that you have to find better descriptors. Yeah. Things that can be truly quantifiable, qualified and, mm. and, and quantified mm. to come to more precise and far more not meaningful, but far more definitive mm. conclusions in ways that simply categorizing good and evil in the historical context of a of a historical subject as such it leads you down a whole bunch of very odd roads when there are better ones mm. but what i will say maybe to wrap things up well honorus definitely no matter what way you quantify he definitely wasn't the worst emperor but he definitely wasn't the best either no, no, no. He, I mean, save some of his goofier moments here, mm. and specifically the story that grew up around his reaction mm. to what was happening to Rome. If he weren't so goofy, in some ways, he might be otherwise quite forgettable. Exactly. And one last given question. how feckless he was. Exactly. And one last question that comes to mind for me is. Would any other emperor have done a better job at this time in Western Roman history? You know, Western Rome was so deeply struggling at the time. Like, could anyone have done any better? Minus another, like, uh, Diocletian rising from the ashes or something like that. Could anyone have done any better than this? That, that also runs into another major issue of the historian, which, of course, is counterfactual history. Of course, yeah. And where then you're you're legitimately on a path of well from from what means can I proceed with any sort of meaningful conclusion mm. based on the simple premise because it didn't actually happen. Yeah, that's very true. But it's something to worth thinking about. But Honorus, you were very silly, but you're definitely not the worst. I think we can both agree on that fact. In any quantifiable way, he probably wasn't the worst. We have seen mm. far more destruction. We've seen far more incompetence. We've seen far more malice. Mm. Well, <laughs> that is quite the subject. It's interesting that just his very nature, Patrick, mm. has led this segment to almost have its own silly quality to it yeah and we're not even trying no no it's just his general silliness kind of rubs off, off, rubs off on us and i love i love when things get a bit silly personally like it happens with ad history sometimes it happens with name explain when you sort of just get into something that's ridiculous between some of the more serious stuff which we're going to be covering in our next middle segment for sure and what we're going to be covering in your segment as well paul it's good for to the just... remainder of the episode this is going to get a lot heavier yeah without a doubt so but let's leave the silliness at the door i suppose for now we have definitely filled our quota and mm. based on what's coming next we'll be glad that we did mm. fulfill that quota us here you there and we'll be back right afterward from ad this is the AD History Podcast. 
Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. So, Paula, it's that time again. We're going to hear more about Attila the Hun, and I'm looking forward to learning more about this. Perhaps one of the most infamous figures in ancient history. Paul, set the scene for us, please. Indeed, it is best to set the scene. Patrick, when we think about the notorious nomadic so-called barbarians of history, put barbarians in air quotes <laughs> for all intents and purposes, what are some of them that come to mind? Is Attila not sitting there right next to, say, Genghis Khan? I mean, I think so. I, I often link the two together quite closely. They definitely share a same sort of, like, area of history that's for sure without a doubt hmm. and so naturally you hear the name attila and it conjures up all sorts of different images yeah. of death and destruction and conquest you know and conquest hmm. as you imagine they would and in the course of the next three episodes we're exploring the singular figure of course attila the hun no discussion of the fate of Europe from this point in the show forward can be had without Attila. His relatively short life and overall rule are endlessly fascinating. And in this episode, we are looking at how the young man would find his way to power as... Attila the Young, sorry. <laughs> indeed, Attila the Young when he was Attila the Young. And... Because this is a three-part episode, because this life and figure is just so important and there's so much information, relatively speaking, we're doing this. And this is the first of three parts, and today we are learning about Attila the Young and how he found his way to power. Attila in power has, you know, it definitely conjures up in the popular imagination one of the quintessential barbarians from history. His name ranks with Genghis Khan, and mm. his name is just historically prolific and it still continues you know you know mm. it does not rank in the scope to the same extent as genghis khan because the khanates you know they conquered large swaths of two continents mm. and his name definitely suggests in the popular imagination more conquest than attila actually achieved but that's also part of the strength of that legend is it not mm, totally something i find interesting is when we think barbarian we tend to think like Northern European, at least I do anyway. I think sort of Germanic tribes, sort of your Viking sort of tribe. And he wasn't that at all. He was from like Asia, I guess, initially as, as a nomadic person. That's not often an area we tend to uh, think of with barbarianism. Well, we definitely discussed mm. this quite a bit in terms of the origin of the European mm. Huns in the, in the previous season, where mm. they came from. And at this point, they're very much what we would call the European. Oh, um, okay, then. Okay. Yeah. So where does this legend of Attila and the reality of the man who was Attila even meet? 
was it that Attila seems so outsized compared to the likely reality? How can this be reconciled? And to answer these questions, we need to look at the European Huns themselves. And as we discussed in last season's episode, The Huns, History's Perfect Enigma, uncovering accurate factual and historical truths about the European Huns is wrought with vexing pitfalls of all varieties. It is more than the occasional and unmistakable soul-stirring thousand-yard stare. The Huns were not a literate culture, possessing no known written language by which to tell their own story, recording critical cultural elements for posterity, or telling their side of the proverbial story in any way that could reasonably survive into modernity, Patrick. Mm. To a certain extent, they proved the exception to the widely understood adage, victors write the history. Mm. Foremost, it is nigh daunting to write the history in a culture that only seemingly possessed an oral tradition. Moreover, their enemies and rivals by the tame of Rua the Hun, which is the predecessor to Attila and his brother Leda, and of course them being their, you know, his quite infamous successors, chiefly the Romans of both the eastern and western hues were both prolific and indefatigable historians of their own civilization, and at times others as well. Hmm thus leading to the outcomes of the Hunnic enemies writing the history for their European Hunnic rivals, insofar as they could reasonably do so. Indeed, the appearance of the Huns finding their way through the Urals and over the River Volga, the natural barriers often recognized as the eastern demarcation between Europe and Asia, in the late 360s and early 370s, leaving the Romans in particular with far more questions than answers for those folks who are basically trying to figure out the details of their origins. And I guess it's interesting, because when you sort of start to think about this, it seems as if only throughout the course of history of advanced human civilization, the casualty uh, of that tossed around, the idea of victors uh, write the history, would be fewer in case than you presumed. Like, like you said, Attila was the victor in many circumstances, but him and his people didn't really write all that much. This was sort of probably, this was like Roman historians writing about their victory. So at what point throughout the greater epoch of advanced human civilization, do societies turn the corner and develop literary societies as opposed to like oral traditions? Well, that's a really good question. Hmm. And one, you know, that I'm curious about in terms of your experience in name explain. Hmm. Obviously, you've had to have run across more than a few situations where a subject you're talking about had to have included a society that basically only had an oral tradition, right? Well, it's kind of interesting because especially talking about Hungary and the Huns, obviously, Hungary is one of those few countries I haven't really delved all that much into. And its etymology isn't the most clear, despite being a very popular nation, having a very unique name unto itself. You know, it doesn't. It's not a something land or something e. Hungary is a very unique name, but there's not much information out there, and let alone their own name for their land, which I can't even attempt to pronounce. I can't remember how, how we say yeah, Hungary. Yeah, and it's, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a hell of a name, but it's something I want to talk about. But there's just not as much information out there as opposed to, say, when we're talking about the Romans, because they were so good at writing down their their information. And something, especially with name explain, because name explain is so language centric and i think i've said in the past language doesn't preserve in the same way a dinosaur bone or an ancient piece of pottery does it's there's no physical form it just 
goes away and it's so hard to find things sometimes. So when you do come across... Even when it's written down. Even when it's written down, of course, you know, like, we're lucky to have so much from ancient Rome still with us today. So yes, I have come across this with all traditions. And you kind of just got to, I almost say wing it. You've kind of, when I do videos like that, I like to make it as clear as possible that we don't know this entirely. Some things are lost to history. And it's just being aware of that whenever you go into something like this. Well, you know, mm. the thing that I'm curious about is, and and this is more just a general observation mm. based once again on your experience with mm. name explain, because you're dealing with this these kind of matters as a matter of course, mm. which is, do you ever, is, is there a point in a history when you've begun noticing that oral traditions and cultures that generally don't write things down and only pass them on in an oral way start to begin to disappear do you is there a point in time uh, a part of temporal demarcation when you start seeing this go away in your experience so the closest i can kind of come to i haven't noticed an exact turning off point but i've often sort of said to myself and others some of the videos i enjoy uh doing most tend to be ones especially when it comes to country and geography tend to be ones based in north and south america and that is because because a lot of those countries and especially their modern names in those modern countries are a lot more recent in history we know a lot more about their names and their origins because it was from a time of history say what was that like the 1500s 1400s onwards kind of very much the start of the modern era in which there is vastly much more information out there about how these places got their names. Take somewhere like Bolivia, we know for sure it was named after Simon Bolivar and we know his life and his history. Then you get to a country like Poland or even like more Asian like China or Japan or Korea and there just isn't as much information out there. They're not as fun videos to produce because the facts just aren't there. It all, it's all just kind of a bit ambiguous. So I would say you kind of notice it around the turn of the beginning of the modern era of history. Once you get through the Middle Ages and antiquity as we're in now almost approaching the middle ages it's kind of from that point onwards we tend we tend to get a bit more clarity on especially in regards to where names of countries and places came from that's interesting mm. given the situation and and what we're dealing with here even though we've covered the huns in the past it is important that before we get into attila himself that we really do once again briefly lay the groundwork for who these people were, and of course, their most infamous interactions coming with the Romans themselves being such a critical player in what would turn out to be the fate of the Western Empire. Yeah, and something I'm curious about, Paul, is, as we mentioned, most of what we know about the Huns came from Roman sources. So did the Romans actually know much about the Huns and like their origins? They knew surprisingly little. They had a general idea hmm. of the direction they came from, and undoubtedly they heard the old apocryphal story about how you had the Huns that were basically sitting in the Kuban in southern Russia that we would call it today, and you had Goths in Crimea, and that some basically Hunnic hunters went into the marshy lowlands near the Kerch Strait and while well, following game, and they realized that there was a beautiful temperate land just beyond. And the fact that they only, you know, found that out then is really quite unbelievable. The Carriage Strait is very narrow. Mm. And the waters would have been, I think, if I understand correctly, even lower at this point. 
So that's kind of the extent of what they knew, and it wasn't exactly easy getting the answers they would have been looking for. Um, that much is certain. Mm, so like, uh, in this time, when the Huns sort of seemed like something of a distant threat in some strange way, did, did the, what did the Romans think of them? What was their view on these sort of rivals during this sort of period of history? Well, first off, the one thing that they could definitely say for sure is that they seem, from the Roman perspective, to show up out of nowhere. Mm. Um, generally, in this great migration that we had talked We've about talked at about length. That, yeah. And, yeah, exactly. So, here's something that's interesting, and this is after a bit of time has passed and there's been established relations diplomatically and, you know, certainly conflict back and forth between the Romans and the Huns. And as you may remember, our old friend Ammianus Marcellinus was a 4th century Roman soldier and, more importantly, historian uh, passing along this information from the late 4th century. The following is a selection from his written impressions describing, in his uh, view, in an educated Roman historian perspective of the era, the physical appearance of the Huns and just his general impressions of them overall. And here, Marcellinus writes, quote, The people of the Huns, but little is known from ancient records, dwelling beyond the Maotic Sea, near the sea-blind ocean, exceed every mode of savagery. Since there are the cheeks of the children are deeply furrowed with the steel from their very birth, in order that the growth of hair, when it appears at the proper time, may be checked by the wrinkled scars, they grow old without beards and without any beauty like eunuchs. They all have compact, strong limbs and thick necks, and so monstrously ugly and misshapen that one might take them for two-legged beasts or for the stumps rough-hewns into images that are used in putting sides into bridges. But although they have the form of men, however ugly, they are so hardly in their mode of life that they have no need of fire, nor of savory food. When away from their homes, they never enter a house unless compelled by extreme necessity, for they think they are not safe when staying under a roof. They dress in linen cloth or in the skins of field mice sewn together and they wear the same clothing indoors and out. Close quote. That's Ammianus Marcellinus. That's a hell of a description there. It's almost not human at points. Like, clearly, it definitely gives you kind of an idea of how the Romans are thinking about these folks. Totally, and like, uh, the Romans have probably very rarely seen people of this race, of this ethnicity, I suppose, to some degree. That is clearly quite a shock we live in a day and age where we see people of all different appearances but i guess even though the roman empire was pretty large and did cover a huge variety of ethnicities and races clearly uh, people like this were just alien in, to some extent to the romans and of course they're just sort of described like savages grown without beards like eunuchs that's a hell of a description don't go inside if they don't have to now, even skins of field mice sewn together, that's so weird. Like, why mice? That's just, it's very, very, that's something I picked up for, very strange. 
the tone has a classic condescending Roman tone to it. Mm. There, there is nothing grander than the Latin culture and the Roman civilization. Mm. Anything beyond that is just, it almost like, it comes off a bit like just xenophobic and racist to an extent of like very ancient conceptions. You know, it's just Romans being Romans. Yeah, that too. Without a doubt. Where does Attila fall into all of this? While there is no definitive known date for when Attila was actually born, it is believed that he was born circa 406 AD. He and his brother Bleda were the sons of a Hunnic chieftain by the name of Mundusk, who himself was the brother of the Hunnic king Rua and Akhtar that ruled jointly for a time. So there's a little question that Attila was from about as noble a dynastic Hunnic lineage as any that would have existed at the time of the early 5th century or late 4th century. The previous passage with Marcellinus' description of Hunnic life was extremely unlikely to have ever truly represented Attila's life and experience, and growing up in that higher echelon of Hunnic society. In fact, Attila had some experiences far more familiar to us than you would think. (laughs) Apparently, Attila, around age 12, served in the role of a VIH, very important hostage, as we might call it, during an arrangement with the Romans that gave him an invaluable experience to learn his later Roman foes almost intimately, serving as a helpful insight for managing his future Hunnic-Roman relationships. Romans in earlier centuries, and possibly even still then, still saw arrangements as an opportunity, namely to create sympathy on the part of said captives towards Rome and the culturally Latin way of life. It didn't quite work out that way with Attila, however, but it's a quite an mm. experience for Attila, especially when he's coming to know who the Romans are and how to deal with them later on. And something I found interesting about that, Paul, is it, it goes against that sort of textbook image we have of Attila to some extent of being that sort of savage barbarian that mm-hmm. wasn't his case so he sounded like he was from quite high Hunnic society really so it kind of immediately goes against many of us our preconceived notion of what Attila was like but um we've all heard about how the Romans viewed their classic Hunnic rivals in the early 5th century and are there any first-hand accounts describing like Attila's personality Or is there even like a description of his physical appearance? Because I have an image of Attila in my head. Where has that come from? Well, I'm sure in in that case, there are many situations where it's a product of long hell Roman propaganda. Mm. So I have an answer for you, but it's, you know, possibly secondhand. But yes, in fact, there is a very famous one attributed to Priscus of Paneum, who we'll actually hear more from in our next episode and the Mm. next part on the subject from Priscus quote. He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the scourge of all lands who in some way terrified all mankind by the dreadful rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes hither and thither so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, 
yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to supplicants, and lenient to those who were once received into his protection, short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head. His eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with gray, and he had a flat nose and swarthy skin showing evidence of his origin. Close quote. Once again, that's Priscus of Paninium, a diplomat in service to the Eastern Roman Empire, a little bit later on, who we'll once again encounter in one of our upcoming editions of this particular topic. So that that description fits somewhat with the generic description of Huns in general, I'd say, to a degree. That it does, mm. but you also notice there are certain parts about it where and I don't think I'm reading too far into this, but they're they're almost complementary. Oh, totally. In a way. He was bo- Especially when you start getting into his personality. He was indeed a lover of war, mm. yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to supplicants, and lenient to those who were once received into his protection. Born into the world to shake the nations. Like we've never we've never really come across someone like that thus far in AD history. And it's also important to note that in the opening of that of that passage there, he refers to Attila as the scourge of all lands. Indeed, mm. one of the ways he's referred to, and even known today, is basically by the very interesting title, the scourge of God. <laughs> but he clearly, in this case Priscus, does have a certain admiration for how Attila carries himself. Now, granted, this is not when he's a boy. This is when he's much older. Mm. But it definitely conveys from the Roman perspective a certain refinement about him, which is to say that, yes, he may look like a foul, you know, appearing barbarian, but he is refined. He knows what he is doing, and he's somebody to take very seriously and hold in high regard. This is a bit of a tangent, but do you know what's coming to mind for me a little bit in all this? Mm. Frankenstein's monster. So this is kind of fitting because we're recording this around the Halloween season. If you've read the original book by Mary Shelley, so Mm. that that idea of the Frankenstein's monster being this big, green, low-intelligence monster is actually so far removed from uh, how Shelley portrayed him in the original novel. He is described as like this hulking mass He's actually described being somewhat handsome, but having these sort of grotesque features, which like, and his handsome features make his grotesque features look worse. But he's also a highly educated creature. He reads a lot of books. I don't know if you've read the book, but I'm not making this up. He's a yeah, very. It's interesting. Those are elements of Frankenstein's monster that are not popularly portrayed. No, not at all. And it's fantastic because literally the original book's one of my favorite books out there. I love it to pieces. Um, he's portrayed as like this very elegant byronic kind of figure which makes sense because obviously Shelley's relations with Lord Byron her her friendship her kinship with him and that Mm. kind of that idea of like this hulking mass of a human but it's actually got some brains and some finesse behind him it's just what came to mind when you read that description it's it's interesting to say the least Mm. so I I wouldn't say that Priscus's description quite fits the profile many of us have of Attila that's for sure Mm. though in truth all the better this is far more prosa- far more prosaic description gets us away from <laughs> literature and the Hollywood-esque impressions of Attila and creates someone altogether more human. I don't know about you, but the more human a figure is shown to be, especially in history, the more impressive and at times the more terrifying they can be. Mm-hmm. 
totally, you know, I love finding the human element of these historical figures. Absolutely. Now, in terms of his coming of age, during the altogether, not altogether extensive rule of his uncle Rua, Attila and his brother Blada waited in the wings for their time to come. It was undoubtedly a very turbulent time for the Huns. The surrounding Goths of various stripes, largely found in the Hungarian plains as well as in Pannonia, the Balkans, and the Roman Empire stretching all the way to Constantinople. They were surrounded by potential rivals, and any Hun, Hunnic king of any stripe or hue, has to be able to navigate this very complex and often changing political ge geopolitical mm -hmm. landscape, to be sure. And that's altogether very difficult. But one thing is for sure, based on the little that we know, and unfortunately, it is very little that we know about the young Attila, it does seem that in one way or another, he was most certainly brought up and had the experiences that someone of his standing and nobility in, you know, Hunnic European mm. society would need ultimately to accede to that ruling role. And unfortunately, this is all we know really about this young Attila. He clearly was being prepared. He was clearly in a place where he was going to accede to this position, though not alone. When his uncle Rua dies in 434, he actually accedes to ruler of the Huns with his brother Leda. And that is where we're going to leave off for hmm. today. When in our next episode, and our next installment, the second of three about Attila the Hun, we're going to discuss his early years in power and ruling with Blada, which has a very unique twist to it, to say the least. But that's what I have for you here today, Patrick. A bit complex, but once again, it's a three-parter. Oh, no, this is going to be a fascinating three-parter, Paul. I love when we get the chance to really deep dive, take multiple episodes to go into a historic figure, a historical event. It has been absolutely fascinating. I've probably learned more about Hatila Dahan in this segment alone than I knew previously. And he's an enigmatic figure for sure. And I... You can't help but feel there's something of a right place, right time kind of thing going on here because Rome was primed for plucking right now and it seems the best time for a charismatic person like Attila the Hun, a vicious warlord, hungering for war, as uh, we talked about, as he was described earlier, to be in on the scene. You got that right. Mm. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right afterward from the voice of AD history herself, Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. 
Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching ADHistoryPodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at ADHistoryPodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.